0: Hey guys, stay tuned to the end of this episode for a preview of a fantastic new podcast tackling some very important issues. It's out of Canada. It is called Thunder Bay. At the end of this episode, you will hear that promo. So stay tuned. On Halloween of 1975, 15-year-old Martha Moxley was found in her own yard, beaten to death. The town's police force had not investigated a murder since 1949. Last week, we discussed the murder and the major players in the case. So if you didn't listen to that, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to it before you listen to this one, or you'll be pretty confused. Now we're going to talk about the legal saga that has left Martha without justice and discuss who was really responsible for the death of Martha Moxley. Welcome back to part two of our coverage of the Martha Moxley murder case. This is Insight. I'm Charlie and with me as always is Allie. How are you, Allie?
1: I am doing well. I'm looking forward to getting into the second part of this case.
0: I think the theory section is usually where we have the most discussion. So it was kind of odd to leave off last week without any discussion. Yes. So I definitely have some thoughts that I've been holding on to for a while. We left off last week with the state deciding to hold an investigatory grand jury to look into this case. And the investigatory grand jury was a one-person jury, and that person was Judge George N. Thim, And Judge Thim had a power that investigators didn't previously have, and that was the ability to subpoena people. And they would basically be compelled to speak. They could still invoke their right against self-incrimination, of course. That may have applied to some of the people questioned. But otherwise, they couldn't simply just refuse to make a statement like they could have when it was just the police involved. I think it's just important to note here because we have talked about influence and wealth and power and politics. It's important here to note that in Connecticut, judges are not elected like they are in some other states. It is an appointment by the governor, and Judge Thim had been a public defender until he became a judge. So as tempting as it is to try to look into political motives or a bias in favor of the state in this case... I don't think we're going to get very far there in this case, not with Judge Thim and not with how Connecticut has their judges appointed versus elected. This was like any other grand jury. It was kept secret. So we don't know exactly what happened. We do know some parts. We do know it lasted 18 months and over 50 witnesses were questioned. Judge Thim went over the entire case file and all of the evidence In the end, Judge Thim recommended Michael Skakel be indicted for the murder of Martha Moxley in January of 2000.
1: Our first clue to the information that led Judge Thim this direction came from a pre-trial hearing in June of 2000, where Michael's former classmates from boarding school testified that he confessed while at school. Both of these classmates came forward after seeing the Martha Moxley segment on Unsolved Mysteries in 1996, and yes, this segment did happen to mention the large reward for information in the case. Let's back up a bit and talk about this school because it's extremely relevant. The school Mock was at was the Elan School, and it was a tough love-style boarding school for troubled youths. Rushton shipped Michael off to Elan after a driving under the influence arrest in 1978. Michael had been spiraling for years. The nicest way I've seen Elan School described is misguided in its techniques. Boiled down though, it used shame and abuse in an attempt to reform troubled youths. There was no exception for kids like Michael who had suffered trauma in their childhood like the loss of his mother in his pre years or the physical abuse from his father. If anything, it continued re-traumatizing him by continuing the abuse. The stories that have come out of the Elan School, even recent ones from shortly before its closing in 2011, are awful. Look into it if you're interested, but we'll warn you, their first-hand accounts of child abuse They are incredibly difficult to read. The Elon School, for their part, has denied everything and said it was the false accusations that caused the school to shut down. I don't know how they can overcome the vast number of stories that are out there, though.
0: Michael was at the Elon School for two years. One classmate, John Higgins, testified that Michael said that he may have been involved in a murder. Michael didn't remember actually committing the murder, but he did remember taking a golf club out of a bag in the garage after a party and running through the woods. But he couldn't remember anything else. If he had killed Martha, he had blacked out. There are some pretty obvious issues with this claim. First, there was no party. They were all just kind of hanging out after dinner. Second, the Skakels didn't have a garage, The former garage on the property had been converted into a living space. But even if this building was referred to as a garage by Michael for some reason, the golf clubs weren't kept there. And they weren't kept in a bag. They were kept in a barrel or they were scattered outside. There was a tree line along the street, but nothing that would be considered woods between the Skakel's home and the Moxley driveway where Martha was attacked, Certainly not enough to run through. Four steps and you'd be on the other side of the trees. So of the four clear details in John Higgins' story, none of them are actually
1: possible. Gregory Coleman was another witness. He is someone Michael characterizes as one of his bullies and tormentors at the school. After Michael attempted to run away from Elon, Gregory was in charge of guarding him and made a comment about how Michael could get away with murder. He claimed, Michael replied, he was getting away with murder and quote, I am a Kennedy. Then Michael told him he killed Martha because she turned down his sexual advances and then he masturbated on her body. He also claimed that at one point that Michael said he visited Martha's body for two days, which is a major issue since we know Martha was found the next day. But this story did largely form what would be the prosecution's motive. Michael killed Martha because she not only turned him down, but she chose his brother Thomas instead. Gregory said he heard Michael confess five or six times, and then later he said twice. To explain away this discrepancy, he explained he had done heroin right before the grand jury, and that's when he said it was the five or six times, so his recall wasn't great. The time he said it was twice, he was on methadone, and that was a more accurate recall. Now, seeing as his testimony at the grand jury is part of why Michael was indicted, it's troubling to know that he was so high that he wasn't confident in his recall of events.
0: Now, aside from that fairly minor discrepancy, the most factually incorrect thing in Gregory's testimony was the visiting of the body statement. But sometimes people say things in tough places like prison or even lawn. They make things sound worse. They did worse things because then they sound bigger or scarier. It's a way to protect themselves from people who are bigger and scarier. So I could almost believe that Michael said this part to sound scary. For me, the true issue with Gregory's testimony were his repeated requests for the reward money and consideration with his current prison sentence in exchange for his testimony. Incentivized witnesses always, always, always give me pause. Gregory died from a bad batch of heroin before the actual trial, so his pre-trial testimony was allowed in. This was a huge disadvantage to Michael's defense. Gregory, if he appeared in person, wouldn't have come across well to the average juror. He was a long-term heroin user, and he looked the part. His appearance, fairly or not, would have made the jury think twice about his credibility. It also left Michael's attorney... Unable to cross-examine him past what was done in the pre-trial hearings, if there was any new information his attorney had or had hoped to use at trial against Gregory and to impeach him, he couldn't because Gregory wasn't there for a new cross-examination.
1: One of the most damning statements against Gregory came from his family attorney. The attorney contacted the prosecution to warn them against using him in the trial because his credibility was non-existent. In a later hearing, an affidavit from the attorney was read and it said it would be fair to say that no one in their right mind knowing Gregory would put the slightest confidence in his contentions concerning the supposed admissions of Michael Skakel. This is from Gregory's side of the table saying this about him.
0: I just honestly do not believe these confessions happened. I don't think they did. Whether you think Michael Skakel is guilty or not, these don't make sense.
1: I also have a lot of issues with these confessions or supposed confessions. And before I do forget, there is an excellent documentary available for those out there brave enough to watch it about Elan called Children of Darkness. But during the trial, which we'll get to, it did come out that Michael was beaten into making a confession and he was forced to wear a chicken suit and called names until he made a confession. And something that we will go into later, he was forced to wear a sign saying he killed Martha for six weeks and then he was made to sit in front of 100 students while they shouted at him until he confessed. I'm not saying that I think he's innocent here, because there is a chance he did kill Martha, although I don't think I could convict a beyond reasonable doubt if I was on the jury, but again, we'll get to that later. But if he did say anything incriminating and he did make any type of confession, based on that information, it would be coerced or considered coerced. And I don't think any of that would be admissible in any court of law.
0: And it's interesting because they didn't try to admit anything except these two confessions that he supposedly made in private. They didn't try to admit any of the public stuff that had happened because they knew anything that was or was not said in those things is
1: unreliable. He may have liked the attention he got from those public confessions. Maybe it made him feel tougher Maybe he thought he had nothing to lose, so he might as well make the other confessions. I guess we'll never know, if he did do it, why he did it. There is additional information that these statements were fabricated. Multiple people from Elon, including one of the controversial founders of the school, said that if Michael Skakel had ever confessed to anyone, it would have gotten around the school. Shame was part of the process, so students were rewarded for tattling on each other. As I said, Michael had to wear a sign that said, ask me about my brother killing my friend or something to that effect. Another time, the sign said something like, ask me about how I killed my friend. The Moxley murder was used against Michael at Elan. So it's unbelievable to those who knew the culture at the school that he would have confessed to these two people and no one else heard about it. They never told another classmate or teacher, even when Michael was being forced to make these public confessions and wear these signs. Neither of these other men were Michael's friends. They didn't like him and he didn't like them. They had no incentive to stay quiet at Elan or protect him for the decades that followed.
0: We aren't going to get into the whole trial because we don't want to make this a three-parter, so let's hit the highlights. One really interesting thing I remember from back when this was unfolding was that there was some pre-trial back and forth over how to charge Michael. He was 15 at the time of the murder, so he was a juvenile, but he was 40 when he was arrested. So there was a concern that if he was convicted, how were they even going to jail him when he's no longer a juvenile? Connecticut didn't have any facilities for that. He could have ended up with no prison time, and that would have been a very unpopular decision. So it was finally ruled that he would be tried as an adult. There was also some pre-trial arguing about a weird quirk in Connecticut law that wasn't resolved until 1976. This may be boring to the rest of you, but I thought it was interesting. At the time of Martha's murder, Connecticut had a statute of limitations on any crime not punishable by the death penalty. Because of the nationwide moratorium on the death penalty from 72 to 76, technically no one was eligible for the death penalty in Connecticut at the time of Martha's murder. So any crime, including murder, would only have had a five-year statute of limitations. So the law that is applied in a criminal case will usually be be the laws that existed at the time the crime was committed. So this argument that Martha's case was outside the statute of limitations because at the time there was only a five-year statute was rejected. It was essentially a technicality and no one was going to let an alleged murderer get away on a technicality. The changing of a state law simply hadn't kept up with changes in the federal law. The issue was resolved in 1976 when Connecticut did away with it. And so the judge in the Michael Skakel case decided it did not apply. But I think it was a pretty good try, legally speaking.
1: The trial began in mid-May of 2002 and lasted three and a half weeks. Any case that's 27 years old is going to be hard to try, but this one seemed to have some really big hurdles. Firstly, there was no forensic evidence linking Michael to the murder. None. There were no witnesses to the crime or to Michael being in the area. The only people claiming to for sure have seen Michael that night saw him 11 miles away. What the state had was Michael's out-of-control behavior during his years as an addict, though he got clean and sober in the early 80s and stayed that way. But they showed him to be a violent and reckless young man, and that's hard to argue with because he was both those things. The other thing the state had were the supposed confessions from the two years at the Elan school. Now, we already talked about the problems with these individual statements, so we won't go over that again. But at trial, eight other classmates would testify that they never heard anything about Michael confessing and that, yes, had it happened, it would have been all over the school.
0: The biggest hurdle, other than lack of evidence, was that Michael had an alibi. At the supposed time of the murder, he was miles away watching TV. The prosecution attacked his alibi two ways. One, they questioned the time of death established by the experts used in the initial investigation. They had a medical examiner testify that the time of death could have been as late as 1.30 in the morning, giving Michael two hours back in Belhaven before Martha was killed. The issue with this is that if Martha was still out until at least 1130 when Michael got home, possibly till 130 in the morning, where was she? That's at least an hour and a half after she was seen by Thomas. All of her other friends were home. None of them reported seeing her after that point. Her mother never saw her and she was watching for her. So if Martha had come in and out of the house, she would have seen her. So did she just seriously roam around alone for at least two hours late at night, only for Michael to attack her as she finally got back to her house? So that doesn't really make a lot of sense. The time of death had been initially narrowed down using contents of her stomach and also circumstantial evidence like the last time she had been seen. The reported ruckus of the neighborhood dogs that was reported by a number of neighbors and also Dorothy's own reports of hearing at least one male voice and some scuffle sounds around 10 p.m. The prosecution was then saying it's actually possible it was much later. We're going to ignore this ruckus and scuffle. And I mean, I'll give them that's possible. It was mischief night. There may have been something else that was setting off the dogs. Maybe it was two men arguing what Dorothy heard. Based on circumstantial evidence, I really do think the time of death was more like 10 o'clock, but I'll give the prosecution that this is possible.
1: I agree. I think that everything does point to the 10 o'clock time period. But the second way they attacked the alibi was by saying it was a setup. So even if the murder happened at 10pm, Michael still could have done it because the alibi witnesses were lying. Michael's alibi witnesses at the trial were all family members. The only non-family member called to the stand was his sister's friend Andrea, who said she was under the impression Michael stayed behind at the house. But she wasn't sure she saw him at the house, so her testimony didn't necessarily break his alibi. She just drew a big question mark around it. But it would later come out that there was one person Michael was not related to who could vouch for his alibi. He was a friend who was at the house where they watched Monty Python – Michael's defence never called this man to the stand, even though he still lived in Greenwich at the time of the trial, and he would have testified if called. But he was never called, and this will come up again later. Michael's defence was mostly that Michael didn't do it. The state didn't prove that he did it, and it was more likely to be Ken Littleton, the called shooter, who did it. Ken was the only possible alternative suspect name in an attempt to raise reasonable doubt. I think the defense really believed that the state's case was too thin and required the jury to take too many leaps in logic. Many watching the trial, though, at best, the state would get a hung jury. It was hard for some to believe that they could convict.
0: But they did convict, and I think it's the state's closing argument that allowed for that. The prosecutor had this audiovisual presentation Using recordings of Michael over photos from the crime scene, the recordings came from an author before his arrest, but after people started suspecting him in the murder, Michael decided to write his side of the story, but he was going to use a ghostwriter. The ghostwriter recorded their conversations, which is a usual process for many ghostwriters of autobiographies. Michael talked on tape about Dorothy coming to his home the morning after Martha's murder, asking if he had seen Martha. Michael said things about feeling guilty and wondering if Dorothy saw him the night before. Now, Michael was referring to the climbing the tree and everything that happened up there, not to murdering someone. The full context of the recording shows this, but these select lines taken out of context and then put over photographs from the crime scene, and, well, it sounds like something entirely different. It sounded like he was almost confessing, and he was convicted. In August of that year, he was sentenced to 20 years to life, and that's when we enter the appeals process. But before we get to that appeals process, we're gonna take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors, Brooklinen. Things have escalated at my house in regards to Brooklinen sheets. For a while, I kept finding my Brooklinen pillowcases on pillows on my kids' beds. Recently, I went to change out my linens and I was changing out my gray Brooklinen sheets for my navy blue ones, and I couldn't find them anywhere. So I just did laundry, got the gray ones back on and thought, where in the world did I lose an entire set of sheets? Fast forward a couple of days, I went into my daughter's room for some reason and on her bed were my blue Brooklyn and sheets. Now you have to understand I have a king size bed and she has a twin bed. She wrapped them up so they would fit because in her view, these are the best sheets ever and I can't disagree with her. If you've ever gone to a hotel and felt that incredible feeling of those fancy hotel sheets, that's how Brooklinen got started. A husband and wife thought it shouldn't be so difficult and expensive to get sheets like that in your home. And their mission is to bring those five-star hotel-quality sheets to your everyday life. These are luxury sheets without the luxury markup. Most bedding is marked up as much as 300%. They take out the middleman. They keep things personal. It's between Brooklyn and the customer, from design to manufacturing to customer service and beyond. My Brooklinen sheets are the best and most comfortable sheets I've ever slept on, and my daughter apparently agrees. Brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at Brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so sure you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. The only way to get your $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code SITE. Brooklinen. These really are the best sheets ever.
1: Now again, this would be a three-parter if we covered the whole thing. So again, the highlights only. Michael's direct appeal hit on several points. A direct appeal is the appeal focused on any errors during the trial. Generally speaking, you only get one shot at this and you have to list all the errors from your trial that you are challenging. One issue raised in this appeal was the presentation during closing arguments, and the defence claimed it was edited to sound like a confession and part of the pattern of misconduct during the closing arguments. There was also a sketch by a neighbourhood security guard of someone in the neighbourhood that the security guard didn't recognise – The defense claimed the sketch looked like Ken Littleton, and this sketch wasn't provided to the defense until after the conviction, but we'll get to the sketch more a bit later. His conviction was upheld, though my non-attorney self thought he had a decent claim in regards to the closing argument issues.
0: In 2007, Michael filed a petition for a new trial based on new evidence when someone came forward saying his friends were the culprits. Again, we're going to get more into this when we talk about alternative suspects, but this petition was denied just six months later when the court did not find these alternative suspects likely enough to have raised reasonable doubt for the jury. Then 2010, Michael filed another appeal claiming his trial attorney was ineffective in his defense, and this is probably the least likely appeal to be successful, but it was successful. Ineffective assistance claims are notoriously hard to successfully appeal on. A lot of what may be claimed as ineffective assistance can be discounted as trial strategy. Maybe the attorney didn't call a witness, but maybe that witness wasn't credible. That was the defense's strategy. There are two points you have to prove for this type of appeal to be successful. First, that your attorney didn't do something that a reasonably skilled attorney would have done. Second, you had to prove that if, had your attorney done this thing, the outcome of your trial would have been different.
1: Short of an attorney sleeping through trial, these are hard to prove. All trials are going to have errors. No system and no trial is perfect. Every attorney is going to miss a detail or make a call that another attorney thinks was the wrong call. But usually one or two errors does not a successful appeal make. These errors have to be significant and cannot be considered defense strategy. Mocker was surprisingly successful in this appeal in 2013. The court said that Michael's trial attorney was ineffective because he never pursued the alibi witness who was not a relative of his, and that takes away any confidence in the verdict in his trial. It wasn't just that he didn't find him credible, so he didn't put him on the stand, he just didn't pursue the lead. For those who followed the case from Serial Season 1, and honestly, who hasn't, this is similar to the attorney in that case not pursuing Asia McLean as an alibi witness for Adnan. Adnan's appeal was successful on a different issue, not the alibi witness, though.
0: And after the appeal, Michael was granted bail, and he was released after serving 11 years in jail. Of course, the state appealed and the decision to give Michael a new trial was actually overturned in December of 2016. And in the ruling against Michael, the court said his attorney did provide an adequate defense. So it looked for a little bit like Michael is heading back to prison to finish his sentence, except he was allowed to remain free on bail while the court reconsidered. The vote was initially four to three against Michael, so it was very close. In the time between the original decision and the reconsideration, one of the judges who voted to reinstate the conviction retired, and a new judge came on. So then in May of 2018, the vote flipped, and Michael Skakel was once again granted a new trial. So it looks like this case may go back to trial. We don't know yet. When the conviction was vacated, the state had a few options. They could drop the charges— They could retry him, they could offer him a plea deal where he could pretty much be sentenced to time served, or they could appeal to the U.S. Supreme
1: Court. They have opted for door number four and appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court Just because they appealed does not mean the case will ever be heard. The Supreme Court only hears about 80 cases a year out of the 8,000 that are filed, so statistically the odds are against the state. But they have more hope than many other cases. The Supreme Court takes so few cases, but this case does have the elements of the type of cases they do take. They look for cases that are not only unique, but ones that have far reaching implications. They won't take a case that will only apply to Connecticut, but they will take a case that applies across the United States, and this is such a case. The state's claim here is that a single attorney error is not ineffective assistance, and if this is what passes for ineffective assistance, then the state needs to prepare themselves for a deluge of similar appeals. They're saying that the law has been applied inappropriately here and opened a door that shouldn't have been opened. Eleven other states have joined to file a friend of the court brief supporting Connecticut in this appeal. This alone shows that this ruling is important to other states. It would help define more clearly the legal definition of ineffective assistance of counsel. And this is ongoing. It was just May of 2018 that the ruling came in, and September when the other states filed the friend of the court brief. If the Supreme Court hears the case and rules for the state, Michael's conviction will be reinstated and he will return to prison. If the Supreme Court declines to hear the case or rules against the state, they will face an uphill battle of retrying the case 43 plus years later. But we will keep you updated as information comes out.
0: So now that we've caught up to the present with the legal side of things, we're going to go back to the beginning of the case and discuss the various names that have come up over the years as possible suspects. The first we're going to cover quickly so we can get it out of the way. Obviously, family needs to be looked at, but it's always uncomfortable to do it when we don't really feel like they're viable suspects. It feels distasteful to take the people who are hurting the most and pick them apart. But the police did look at Martha's brother, John, more or less to rule him out. And RFK Jr. gives him an entire chapter in his book, so we're going to go over it here. When Rushden Skakel had those private investigators look into the case, what they wrote up were reports called, quote, worst case scenario reports. They looked at the various people— And wrote up the case against them, basically how they could have committed the crime consistent with the evidence. These were the documents that were leaked, and John was included in one of these.
1: Now, John has an alibi of being out with friends that night, but there seems to be a hole in his alibi, a period of time he wasn't accounted for. But it seems unlikely it was long enough for him to go back to his house, spontaneously murder his sister in a way that surely covered him in blood, him to then clean himself completely and then meet back up with his friends like nothing had happened. The Moxley housekeeper did say she saw what might have been blood smeared on a table in the TV room, but it also could have been food because it was cleaned up before police could see it. Then John searched the yard with his friend that morning and couldn't find Martha. Even the friend admitted it odd they didn't see her with how much they looked. Julie Skakel later recalled in 1994 that she went out with John around 3.30 that morning to search, and John kept trying to get her to go over to his property to the area of the pine tree to look, but she got freaked out and left. She told this story under hypnosis nearly 20 years later, but I'm not sure this is the same as a recovered memory. It sounds like it's something she always remembered happening, but she just never sat down and walked through the details like that. The police hadn't asked her about it. The implication here is that John was trying to lead someone to find Martha's body and he knew where it was. John said none of this happened, and if he was trying to get someone to find Martha's body, why didn't he lead his friend to it the next morning?
0: Then there's this odd letter that was sent by a doctor who knew the Moxleys out in California. He sent it to the judge in Michael's trial, who then passed it on to the defense. This exact letter isn't available anywhere I can find, but RFK Jr. says the doctor said he suspected John was involved in three deaths in California. One was a female friend of John's wrestling teammate, and this teammate's name was George. The other was a neighbor, and the third was a schoolmate. Also, the doctor said that John had Tony Pena golf clubs that had belonged to his coach. I dove into this a little more. I'm pretty sure I found this doctor online and doing some math. I think he was a teenager about Martha's age when she was killed. So he would have known the Moxleys, possibly because he went to school with Martha and John. Like I said, I couldn't find the original letter, but there is a 2008 follow-up letter available online that was written by the same doctor. This letter mentions the three other deaths, but only two of them with enough detail for me to look anything up. One was the friend of his wrestling teammate, George. This young woman was Barbara Hulse. She was last seen the day before Martha's funeral, and her body was found on the day of Martha's funeral. The connection between Martha and Barbara is very thin. It's just that Martha's brother, John, and Barbara's friend, George, knew each other. The follow-up letter makes the claim that two Tony Penna Golf Clubs plus George were all in Greenwich the weekend of Martha's death, but George's name is mentioned by absolutely no one else as being there. None of the Skakels mention him. None of Martha's friends mention him. None of John's friends mention him. None of the family mentions him. Nobody mentions him. But if the link is that John somehow killed Barbara, how could that even have happened? Connecticut and California are on opposite coasts. You can't just, at the age of 17, sneak away from Connecticut for a quick trip to California to murder someone you don't know the day between when you had a police interview and your sister's funeral. This didn't happen. And I find it odd that anyone would try to connect these horrible tragedies on nothing more than John and George being teammates and possibly friends. And geography just makes the connection impossible.
1: As far as the neighbour who was murdered, the follow-up letter says he was a travel agent named Thomas Cook, and he was killed the summer of 1975 while the Moxleys were back in California visiting friends. We did an archive search, and all we found was that there was a travel agent named Thomas Cook, who started what is now an internationally well-known travel agency, but he died in 1890. So clearly we're not talking about the same guy here. Maybe the neighbour was a travel agent with the Thomas Cook company and not named Thomas Cook, but I couldn't find anything else on this. If the doctor was a teenager when the murder happened and got some of the facts muddled, like if George was visiting John or not, and got the name of the travel agent mixed up with the name of the travel agency he worked for, I'm going to say this strikes me as a collection of rumours more than the actual knowledge of any of these crimes. There just isn't enough here adding up. And it appears from the follow-up letter that Michael's attorney did not pursue these claims. Honestly, using a victim's family member as an alternative suspect runs the risk of turning the jury against you.
0: If there is more out there on these other cases, I mean, I'd be open to hearing it, but I doubt it'll change my mind. So until then, let's just go ahead and move past John Moxley. Whatever oddities there are in his story, his alibi covers enough of the evening that I just don't see how he could have committed this murder, cleaned up well enough to rejoin his friends like nothing happened and no one saw him. Because of the Tony Penna Golf Club and that Martha's last known sighting was at the Skakel House, I don't think it's a stretch at all that investigators zeroed in on the occupants of that house. So we are going to talk about all of them in a second. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from a new sponsor, Robin Hood. Robin <music> Hood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and crypto all commission-free. They're striving to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. I find the stock market a little intimidating. So one of the things I liked best about using the Robinhood app is that I was learning by doing. I learned how to invest as I was building my portfolio. I was discovering new stocks, And it's really easy to track your favorite companies with your news feed. The other thing I really like about the app is the ease of use. The charts are easy for me to understand. It's easy to make a trade. It just takes four taps on my smartphone. And the web platform also lets you view stock collections like 100 Most Popular or categories like female CEOs. They're also the analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. It's easy to use. You'll learn as you go. And Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at site.robinhood.com. That's site.robinhood.com. Before the Skakels and their staff, police suspected that neighbor, Ed Hammond, very early on. Now, the Hammond home was right next door to the Moxleys, where Martha was initially dragged from her driveway was toward the Hammond home. One of the initial concerns with Ed is that he had no alibi for the time of the murder, assuming we're still working with that 10 p.m. time of death, give or take 30 minutes. Ed was home alone, watching a movie on TV. Happened to be the French Connection, the same movie Ken Littleton said he was watching. Then, when police searched his room, they found pornographic magazines and clothes that they believed had bloodstains on them.
1: Some reporting says Ed claimed that the blood on his clothes was from a nosebleed. Others say the bloodstains weren't bloodstains at all, but food stains. Unless the stains on his clothing were ever proven to be Martha's blood, the evidence doesn't really amount to much. Another non-Skakele name that has been mentioned is Martha's boyfriend, Peter. Martha's diary shows that their relationship wasn't always smooth and he would be moody towards her. She also talked about kissing other boys and other boys asking her out, even while she was dating Peter. So it doesn't sound like she was that serious about him. He wasn't going out for mischief night, and his alibi was that he stayed in and watched TV with his mother. The theory here is that he showed up anyway, though Martha didn't expect him and she was with Thomas. He got jealous and followed her home and attacked her. Except no one saw him, and his mother vouched for him. So as we know, a mother's alibi isn't exactly solid, but there is no one who can dispute it either. It seems like the boyfriend only makes an appearance as a suspect because he was the boyfriend. Honestly, we could throw in all the boys who liked Martha and might have gotten jealous seeing her with Thomas, and that would be a decent-sized list as Martha was beautiful and popular, but it boils down to no evidence. The witnesses that night do not place any other teen boys in the area.
0: I really think that the lack of other people being seen really does point that it was not someone from the outside or not someone who wasn't already hanging out with them that night.
1: As I said just to you before, Charlie, I find the whole letter situation and the Thomas Cook situation and all of that more confusing than helpful. I really don't understand how John could be in brawled with all that. Ed and Peter and John, I think these are all minor players and there are far more likely persons of interest or suspects out there.
0: So that brings us to the Skakel household. And we'll start with that gardener, um, Frank. You probably forgot about him. We mentioned him in the last episode in passing. He was commonly known as Frank, so that's what we're going to call him. His name was actually Franz. Of all the suspects, he's the one that I personally think wasn't looked at hard enough. Now, I'm not saying he's top candidate or, you know, that he's even terribly likely. I just think there could have been a little bit deeper of a look into him. He died a while ago, so it's unlikely anyone's going to be looking into him now. Frank worked for the Skakel family for nearly two decades. He first worked for Rushton's brother, But when the brother and his wife had died, Rushton hired Frank and his wife. His wife worked as a housekeeper until she was fired in 1975. She had taken a belt to one of the Skakel kids. Rushton believed this was an overstep of her duties. But Frank stayed on and he lived in the basement apartment, which had its own entrance, and he could come and go as he pleased. And his wife at the time was not living there. Frank was a German immigrant, and he had been a German soldier during World War II. According to the Skakel children, he would tell them how during war, the Nazi soldiers could get away with whatever they wanted and that he raped women. And he said this to the smaller Skakel children, like the 9 and 10-year-olds,
1: too. But there are accusations from the Skakels and other in Belhaven that Frank continued this outside of the war and would sexually assault teen girls, largely by cornering them and groping them. These incidents were reported, but he was more or less given a pass. It sounds to me like everyone just wrote him off as a dirty old man versus what he really was, a sexual predator. Whatever Frank was doing the night of the murder, it can't be verified. His wife no longer lived at the Skakel home. Frank stayed there during the week and spent weekends with her at their apartment. He said that he was alone listening to the radio until 10 pm when he fell asleep. Besides being a grade A creep and having no alibi, he quit working for the Skakels shortly after the murder. His wife had been fired six months before, and maybe one of the teenagers murdered someone, so I'd probably be moving on as well. Except he was only months away from the pension because he was technically employed through the Skakel company. He had hung in there that long, what was a couple of more months, for a pretty significant financial benefit.
0: Honestly, him leaving is what makes me think more that he needed to be looked at. That maybe there was something there. Why would he leave? And maybe it was, like you said, he just didn't want to live with a possible murderer anymore, but he took a big financial step down by leaving.
1: I think that Frank had what others don't in this case, and that's a sketchy history. The way she was found with her pants down. That to me does indicate that there may have been an attempt of a sexual assault, and Frank is one of the few that doesn't have an alibi, even though the others are sketchy, but he doesn't have anyone that can verify anything. I am curious as to why he wasn't looked into more when other less likely people were. Perhaps the family didn't push the fact. I am really confused by this whole investigation.
0: And one staff member that was looked into extensively was Ken Littleton, and he was the newest staff member. He was hired to be a tutor. He was 23 years old. He had been hired that day to basically look after the kids, help them with their schoolwork, and possibly get them under control. He taught at the school that the Skakel boys attended, and he moved into the home that same day he was hired. So this all happened very quickly. And on that day, Rushton left for a trip. So Let's, like, summarize this for a minute. As parents, he left a 23-year-old he barely knew in charge of his seven children, and I don't know what he was expecting, but he got someone who didn't think twice about a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old ordering multiple alcoholic drinks at dinner. Ken's story changed between retellings. Like we said, this happens. But it threw up red flags because his stories started changing pretty early on so it's harder to blame it just on memory. He initially said twice that he went to the master bedroom after dinner and stayed there all night. Then he said he actually did go outside when the nanny sent him out there to investigate some noises, and that was at 9.15 or 9.30, even though others place it later. He said he didn't see anyone outside, yet if he was there at 9.15 or 9.30, we already know that the teens were outside, Tommy had gone outside for the tape. The older boys came outside to go to their cousin's house. Julie went to take her friend home. There was some back and forth because they got to the car without the keys. So there was a lot of movement between 9.15 and 9.30. So it seems impossible he stepped outside at that time at the only moment nothing was going on. And then Julie also said she saw him in the kitchen around 10 p.m.,
1: And then we had the security officer who provided a description of a man for a police sketch. This is the same sketch the prosecution didn't hand over to the defence before or during the trial. The man was stopped around 10pm, less than a quarter mile from the Moxley home. When asked by the security guard where he was going, he said he was going home and that he lived on Walsh Lane, which was the road the Moxleys lived on. The Skakels lived on the corner, so while they didn't technically live on Walsh Lane, the site of their property was on Walsh. The man was described as being six foot tall, 200 pounds, wearing dark-rimmed glasses. He was in his late 20s or early 30s and had blonde hair. Some say this sketch looks like Ken Littleton, but Ken's attorney has said in response to this that the person in the sketch has been identified as a neighbour who was out walking that night. Ken Littleton was a troubled man, though, and much like how Thomas and Michael's wild behaviour made them suspects to some, so did Ken's. After about nine months of employment with the Skakels, he was fired when he had a drunken car accident in one of Rushton's cars and left the scene. He went to Nantucket, where he got into significant legal trouble. He had issues with substance abuse, but his main issue was pretty serious mental health issues. He was paranoid and at times delusional.
0: He would also act out violently, and he became the prime suspect for years. Investigators were even looking for unsolved homicides and disappearances of young women in the various places Ken lived, thinking perhaps this wasn't his only murder. He was investigated and reinvestigated. Because of his mental health and addiction issues, he was his own worst enemy in this regard and the worst self-advocate you could ever imagine. After the William Kennedy Smith trial and the Moxley case coming back into the papers, a cold case investigation began, and it started with Ken Littleton. They spoke with his ex-wife, and she said... He had made some vaguely incriminating statements while they were together about things he had done and about the murder. She began talking to Ken again, even though they were estranged, in an attempt to get more information from him for the police. At one visit, he left behind a hair that Dr. Henry Lee, also from the OJ trial, said was consistent with a hair found on Martha, though we've already mentioned this kind of hair analysis is suspect as science. Plus, Martha was in the Skakel home that night where Ken was as well. I'm not sure which car they took to dinner, but if it was the Lincoln, then the hair could have been transferred from them both being in the same car that night. There are some tapes of him talking to his ex-wife, But he never says anything terribly incriminating about the case. In one conversation, she basically tells him that one time when he was drunk, he confessed to her and he was like, I said, what? Like he was confused about what she was talking about.
1: Later, when the investigation turned to look more at Michael Skakel, the prosecutor offered Ken Littleton a very unusual deal considering how strong some investigators felt about his guilt. If he would testify to the grand jury that had been convened, he would have lifetime immunity in the crime. The justification was that Ken could provide Thomas Skakel an alibi for the time period they initially believed the murder occurred, though this alibi of watching the movie together would be thrown out if we expand the time of death to as late as 1.30am. So the same amended timeline they used to discount Michael's alibi also discounts Thomas's and Ken's. And this is a perfect example of how this case goes. Once you give an allowance to include one suspect, you end up ruling in others as well. But why would Ken Littleton, on his very first night on the job, bludgeon to death a girl he never even met? The theory of this is that when Ken went outside to check on the noises the nanny had heard, he saw Thomas and Martha together. For whatever reason, he decided to go after Martha, maybe because he was turned on, his ex-wife said he told her that he preferred teenage girls. He followed Martha, who rejected him or tried to run from him. He picked up a golf club from the Skakehall property while pursuing her, and he stuck her near her driveway, knocking her out. He then dragged her to a more secluded area to kill her, and then he moved her again, thinking she wouldn't be found for a while if she was near the pine tree. Because he was new to the area, he didn't know that kids regularly cut through the area.
0: After the murder, Ken had decided to take the Skagel kids on their usual weekend trip to New York. So we're talking the day after Martha was found. It looked to some like Rushton was getting his boys out of the path of the investigation, but we know he had already let them interview his children without a lawyer or himself present, and he had let them search his house. And this is the New York property that he also let them search. Initially, Ken admitted it was his idea to take the kids there. He said he thought it would be better for them. Their home was swarmed with police and their friend had been murdered. He would later testify at Michael's trial that he was told to take them, but even his grand jury testimony in 1998 said it was his idea. So the testimony at the trial was a change from the same story he had told for decades. Now, where the suspicion towards Ken comes in this trip is that Ken insisted on taking his own car while Thomas drove the other kids, rather than all of them just taking one car. And I can kind of see how this looks suspicious. I mean, was he planning to remove evidence and dumping it along the way? Didn't want the kids to see But I can also see this in another light. Ken was brand new to this job. He didn't know the family's routine in New York. I would want my own car in that situation in case the kids took off with the family car, left me stranded at the house or something. I don't think wanting his own car is a big red flag. I mean, it's maybe a little bit of a control issue, but it's one I have as well. When I travel, I regularly rent cars, even when I have people who could drive me around.
1: I think that any motive involving Ken really doesn't stick for me. I mean, yes, he did tell an ex he preferred teenage girls, but it really would be a leap that he happened to just go outside and see Martha, and preferring teenage girls, he hit on her, but then attacking one and killing one, it's two completely different things, especially since Ken didn't have a history of aggression or violence towards women, I don't believe Ken's responsible, but he for sure didn't do himself any favours in the years after the murder. I think that before that, he had never been in trouble with the law before. I think he was just a convenient scapegoat for the Skakels, but I think it's just a weird red herring in an already complex case.
0: I really have difficulty believing that he took this brand new job and on the first night there, he randomly killed a neighbour that seems so unlikely. It doesn't seem like anything we know about how murderers act. It doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when Thomas puts him back in his room around 1015. So he went, he killed someone, assuming for the first time, someone he didn't know in a neighborhood he wasn't familiar with, and then just went back to watching TV. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think his story may have been confused because maybe he had had more to drink than he should have on the job where he's supposed to be taking care of kids. Maybe it changed because he was having a mental health crisis and honestly doesn't know what the truth is. But I really think the sting operation with his ex-wife trying to get him to confess and still couldn't get anything from him, for me, that largely rules
1: him out. For many years, the trip to New York was spun as a way for the Skakels to get out of Belhaven and somewhere they could go to get their story straight. Before the state painted it as them coming up with Michael's alibi, all things focused on Thomas. It seems some things you would read say that Ken Littleton was the primary suspect and others say it was Thomas. I think they both had lived under a huge and equally dark cloud of suspicion. Within a year of the murder, investigators were so sure of Thomas's guilt that they applied for arrest warrants, but they were denied due to lack of evidence. When Michael's appeal was successful and his conviction overturned due to an ineffective assistance of counsel, The judge actually said Thomas should have been presented as an alternative suspect. Michael's attorney said there was more evidence against Ken Littleton and throwing too many suspects at the jury wouldn't have helped. So he was saying it was defence strategy. But the judge felt Thomas should have been offered to the jury as an alternative suspect. The theory for a long time was that Martha spurned Thomas's advance, regardless of what Thomas says about their encounter. Martha stormed off home, or possibly even ran home. Thomas shouted after her, and that's the voice Dorothy overheard. He picked up the golf club and hit her in the driveway in a rage. When we look at it, there isn't any evidence against Michael that doesn't apply to Thomas. Thomas was seen with Martha that night. He was the last one to see her. Michael changed his story of what happened that night, but so did Thomas. Thomas lived in the house with the golf clubs. Thomas went to New York the day after Martha's body was found. Thomas was unstable and violent. In fact, he had a severe head injury when he was a child that people have said changed his behaviour. What they don't have is anyone saying Thomas confessed. That's the one piece of evidence, if that's what we're going to call it, that was against Michael that wasn't against Thomas.
0: On the other hand, Michael had a stronger alibi. Thomas admitted he was the last one to see Martha. They were alone from 9.30 until 9.50, according to Thomas. But he wasn't seen again until more like 10.15. So he had 45 minutes to commit the murder, clean up, and get in front of the TV with Ken Littleton. He would have to have dodged some witnesses in the house, like the nanny, his sister who came home by 10, his little brothers who were also in the house... But he wasn't 11 miles away like Michael was. And if we push the time of death out to one thirty, like Allie said, pretty much no one has an alibi at this point. So I'm not saying Thomas Scakel killed Martha. I know a lot of people are saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if we look at the evidence, I have to agree with the appellate judge that Thomas seems to be a more likely perpetrator over Michael and over Ken Littleton. And I'm not trying to play Monday morning defense strategy, but I don't think showing that it could have been two other people from the same household would have been an issue for the jury. I think if he was presenting every person we've mentioned, then yes, that would be a, quote, buffet of alternative suspects and not an effective defense. But showing that there were two people in the house with more evidence against them than against Michael, that would have made the case against Michael look even weaker. But this is just my layperson's opinion for whatever it's worth.
1: Thomas does make a hell of a lot more sense than Michael and Ken if we're looking at the persons of interest that we're talking about today. And I think that bringing him up in the trial would have helped Michael's case, because honestly, I can't see her killer being anyone outside of the people that we have talked about today, because Thomas did have that possible motive in that she turned down his advances. His alibi was sketchy at best. Ken and Thomas are a very convenient alibi for each other, and an alibi that may not be relevant anyway. All of that would have helped Michael's case.
0: There's two reasons to not use Thomas. One is if the Skekel money was paying for Michael's defense, and that they wouldn't then want to use a family member as an alternative suspect. But that would be, I would think, somewhat unethical for the attorney. So I think it was more likely that it is distasteful to throw a family member under the bus in your own defense. I know Casey Anthony did it with her dad. And I mean, not that Casey Anthony has a huge fan club or anything anyway, but that certainly didn't help in the end, she was found not guilty, so it helped where it counted, I guess. But it definitely didn't help in the public's eye, and I think that's kind of a gamble with the jury. The jury may have taken Michael pointing the finger at his brother as more distasteful than at Ken Littleton. I don't know. Again, it's a defense strategy. I don't know how this judge is saying that it was ineffective assistance, I'm surprised at that, but obviously an appeals court held it up, so it must be. If this goes to retrial, I think it's more likely that Thomas would be considered an alternative suspect and presented that way to the jury.
1: Now, the last two suspects came out late in the game. This ended up being the basis of the post-conviction relief petition Michael filed. In 2003, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had written an article arguing Michael's innocence. Afterwards, he received a tip that he needed to get in touch with Tony Bryant, cousin of basketball player Kobe Bryant. Tony had attended the same private school as Michael. He had a story that wasn't entirely new. Reportedly, Michael's defense attorney had heard about the tip but dismissed it at the time. Tony's story was that on Mischief Night, he had two friends from the Bronx visiting him in Greenwich. While they were walking around, the friends picked up a club from the Skakel Yard and said they wanted to attack a girl, quote-unquote, caveman style. Tony didn't want to be involved in whatever they had planned, so he left. Later, he heard about Martha's murder and put two and two together. He says his friends confessed to him that they did murder Martha. Martha. These men have been questioned, and they deny involvement, though. There are a few things that make this story seem unlikely. One that was pointed out by the court is that no one saw a group of two to three black teenagers walking around that night. This is a neighborhood where a private security guard stopped someone who was simply walking in his own street at 10 at night but they didn't see or notice these teenagers. I'm not saying there were no people of colour in Greenwich or Bellhaven, but there were so few that these would have been noticed and stopped.
0: Also, the people that Tony said they saw that night don't remember seeing them. So sure, it's two decades later that a story came out and people were trying to authenticate it. But again, if he brought two teens, two black teens from the Bronx to hang out with his Greenwich friends the night a murder happened, I think people would have remembered. So many people were asked on October 31st what had happened the night before, and no one mentions hanging out with this group. 20 years later, they don't remember it, but they also didn't remember it the next day. The only possible link was that hair that was found that was attributed to an African-American police officer, but that is absolutely no smoking gun. Like many of the suspects, I'm sure we can come up with some scenario that makes this theory fit. But where is the evidence? We need evidence. In this case, with all of these suspects, unfortunately has so little evidence.
1: I really think that if this was the case, not only would Tony's friends remember, but the friends and family of these kids from the Bronx would also remember them being somewhere where a well-publicized murder happened, and there'd be something to tie them back to the time of the murder. To me, it's more likely going to be the hair from the police officer than just some random teen.
0: The only thing I don't know is what Tony's motive would be to tell this story all these years later and make it up. So I don't know enough about that, but on the surface, just at face value, this story doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
1: The only thing I could think of is maybe Tony's misremembering when his friends were actually there. Was it a few weeks before, a few months later? And then years later, he's just connected the two because of what his friends said at the time.
0: And that's always a possibility because it seems like a very specific story, but, you know, we don't know that it happened that night.
1: I really can't imagine what the family went through with all of this. Martha being so close to home and so close to being safe. I can't imagine the guilt that her mother must feel unnecessarily, of course, but knowing that she was so close to what was happening to her daughter and she couldn't help. And then to go all of these years to think that you have the person responsible and that it turns out that you don't and there's no justice, it must be heartbreaking.
0: This entire case start to finish has just been a nightmare for the family. They lost their beloved Martha. She was almost home and safe. And like you said, that is just a heartbreaking detail. Sometimes there's just these little details in stories that really grab us. And I think that one grabbed both of us, that she was just so close to being home. And as parents, we just feel so much responsibility to protect our children And there are so many what ifs when something bad like this happens for all of them. You know, what if they didn't let her go out that night? What if David was in town or hadn't taken that transfer? What if John had come home early and went looking for Martha earlier? And then to have the case solved and the man they believe to be guilty behind bars, well, now he's out. And they believe the man who killed their Martha is walking free, able to enjoy his life. It's just, I can't even imagine what this process is like. Trials are just so difficult on families, so difficult. And to be facing that again and having it in limbo for years and years and years. I mean, David passed away. They said he practically worked himself to death because he just got wrapped up in work. It sounds like that was his coping mechanism. Dorothy's still alive. She's in her 80s. John's still alive. That this just has never been resolved for them or wasn't resolved for very long. I mean, I can't even imagine. If she was alive today, Martha would be 58 years old. And her mother has said in interviews that she can't even think about what Martha would have like at different stages or past, you know, where she was when she died. She just can't even go there. This family has been through the worst. And regardless if you think Michael did it or not, the Skakels did it, Thomas did it, Ken Littleton, someone else, someone came in the community, regardless of what we all think happened and what we discuss, the family doesn't have justice. And that's heartbreaking. 43 years on, the only comfort I can imagine the family finds is that Martha has... Not been forgotten. Her case is still making news and people are still demanding justice for Martha Moxley. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme. There's a small city in northern Ontario with the highest murder rate in the country where the mayor is facing a trial for extortion, where nine Indigenous teenagers came from out of town to go to high school and ended up dead.
1: I need you to know there is an activity down by the
0: river that involves throwing Indigenous people into the river when they're too drunk to defend themselves. Doesn't that sound like bloodshed? Don't send your kids here no more because Thunder Bay is a um, murder city.
1: Thunder Bay is a
0: podcast from Canada Land Media. Subscribe now in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.